5. Rule of the Antgresses. 1225. The most beautiful bit of old English prose ever written. It is a book of excellent religious advice and comfort, written for three ladies who wished to live a religious life, without, however, becoming nuns or entering any religious orders. The author was Bishop Poor of Salisbury, according to Morton, who first edited this old classic in 1853. Orebs or Mulam, written soon after the Brute, is a paraphrase of the Gospel Lessons for the Year, somewhat after the manner of Cadman's paraphrase but without any of Cadman's poetic fire and originality. Cursor Mundi, 1320 is a very long poem which makes a kind of metrical romance out of Bible history and shows the whole dealing of God with man from creation to doomsday. It is interesting as showing a parallel to the cycles of miracle plays, which attempt to cover the same vast ground. They were forming in this age, but we will study them later, when we try to understand the rise of the drama in England. Besides these greater works, an enormous number of fables and satires appeared in this age, copied or translated from the French, like the metrical romances. The most famous of these are, The Owl and the Nightingale, a long debate between the two birds, one representing the gay side of life, the other the sterner side of law and morals, and, Land of Cocaine, i.e., Luxury Land, a keen satire on monks and monastic religion while most of the literature of the time was a copy of the French and was intended only for the upper classes. Here and there were singers who made ballads for the common people, and these, next to the metrical romances, are the most interesting and significant of all the works of the Norman period. On account of its obscure origin and its oral transmission, the ballad is always the most difficult of literary subjects. We make here only three suggestions, which may well be borne in mind, that ballads were produced continually in England from Anglo-Saxon times until the 17th century, that for centuries they were the only really popular literature, and that in the ballads alone one is able to understand the common people. Read, for instance, the ballads of the Mary Greenwood men, which gradually collected into the jest of Robin Hood, and you will understand better, perhaps, than from reading many histories what the common people of England felt and thought while their lords and masters were busy with impossible metrical romances. In these songs speaks the heart of the English folk. There is lawlessness indeed, but this seems justified by the oppression of the times and by the barbarous severity of the game laws. An intense hatred of shams and injustice lurks in every song, but the hatred is saved from bitterness by the humor with which captives, especially rich churchmen, are solemnly lectured by the bandits, while they squirm at sight of devilish tortures prepared before their eyes in order to make them give up their golden purses, and the scene generally ends in a bit of wild horse play. There is fighting enough, and ambush and sudden death lurk at every turn of the lonely roads, but there is also a rough, honest chivalry for women, and a generous sharing of plunder with the poor and needy. All literature is but a dream expressed and, Robin Hood, is the dream of an ignorant and oppressed but essentially noble people, struggling and determined to be free, far more poetical than the ballads, and more interesting even than the romances, are the little lyrics of the period, those tears and smiles of long ago that crystallized into poems, to tell us that the hearts of men are alike in all ages, of these, the best known are the, Loom Run, Love Rune or Letter of Thomas D. Hale C. 1250, Springtime, C. 1400, Beginning, London Spring Y.S. Come with Loomph to Tune, and the melodious love song, Palisoon, written at the end of the 13th century by some unknown poet who heralds the coming of Chaucer, Beechoon Mersh and Averill, 
When spray bajineth to sprinch the lute I'll foul half higher will on higher la to sing. Ich libe in love long inch for sem luckest of all finch. She may me bliss a brinch, isham in higher bond down. And handy happy chibaby hint. I quote from heavy knit is me sent. From alley the men miles love is lent and lit on alley soon. Summary of the Norman period. The Normans were originally a hardy race of sea rovers inhabiting Scandinavia. In the 10th century they conquered a part of northern France, which is still called Normandy, and rapidly adopted French civilization and the French language. Their conquest of Anglo-Saxon England under William, Duke of Normandy, began with the Battle of Hastings in 1066. The literature which they brought to England is remarkable for its bright, romantic tales of love and adventure. In marked contrast with the strength and somberness of Anglo-Saxon poetry, during the three centuries following Hastings, Normans and Saxons gradually united. The Anglo-Saxon speech simplified itself by dropping most of its Teutonic inflections, absorbed eventually a large part of the French vocabulary, and became our English language. English literature is also a combination of French and Saxon elements. The three chief effects of the conquest were one the bringing of Roman civilization to England, to the growth of nationality, i.e. a strong centralized government, instead of the loose union of Saxon tribes, three the new language and literature, which were proclaimed in Chaucer. At first the new literature was remarkably varied, but of small intrinsic worth, and very little of it is now read. In our study we have noted, one Jeffrey's history, which is valuable as a source book of literature since it contains the native Celtic legends of Arthur, to the work of the French writers, who made the Arthurian legends popular. Three rhyming chronicles, i.e. history in doggerel verse, like Laomone's Brute, four metrical romances, or tales in verse, these were numerous, and of four classes, of the matter of France, tales centering about Charlemagne and his peers, chief of which is the Chanson de Roland, the matter of Greece and Rome an endless series of fabulous tales about Alexander, and about the fall of Troy, see matter of England, stories of Bevis of Hampton, Guy of Warwick, Robin Hood, etc., the matter of Britain, tales having for their heroes Arthur and his knights of the round table, the best of these romances is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, five miscellaneous literature, the Anquin Railway, our best piece of early English prose, Doarem's Ormulum, Cursor Mundi, with its suggestive parallel to the miracle plays, and ballads, like Kinhorn and the Robin Hood songs, which were the only poetry of the common people, selections for reading, for advanced students, and as a study of language, a few selections as given in Manly's English poetry and in Manly's English prose, or selections from the Ormulum, Brute, and Railway, and Kinhorn, etc. in Morris and Skeet's specimens of early English. The ordinary student will get a better idea of the literature of the period by using the following, Sir Gawain, modernized by J. L. Weston, in Arthurian Romances series Nut, The Nun's Rule and Railway, modern version by J. Morton, in King's Classics, Aucassin and Nicolet, translated by A. Lang Crowell and Company, Tristan and Isoult, in Arthurian Romances, Evans's The High History of the Holy Grail, in Temple Classics, The Pearl. Various modern versions in prose and verse, one of the best is Jewett's metrical version Crowell and Company, The Song of Roland, in King's Classics, and in Riverside Literature Series, Evans's translation of Jeffrey's History, in Temple Classics, Guests the Mabinogion, in Every Man's Library, or S. Lanier's Boys Mabinogion i.e. Welsh Fairy Tales and Romances, Selected Ballads, in Athenaeum Press Series, 
and in Pocket Classics, Daily and Flaherty's Poetry of the People, Bates's a Ballad Book, Bibliography, History, Textbook, Montgomery, pages 58-86, or Cheney, pages 88-144, for fuller treatment, Green, Chapter 2, Trail, Gardner, etc. Jude's Story of the Norman Stories of the Nations series, Freeman's Short History of the Norman Conquest, Huttonskin and Perona Joxford Manuals of English History, Literature, General Works, Jusserand, Tenbrink, Mitchell, Volume I from Cell to Tudor, The Cambridge History of English Literature, Special Works, Schofield's English Literature from the Norman Conquest to Chaucer, Lewis's Beginnings of English Literature, Kerr's Epic and Romance, Saints Burberry's The Flourishing of Romance and the Rise of Allegory, Newell's King Arthur and the Round Table, Manadier, The Arthur of the English Poets, Horatius Studies in the Arthurian Legends, Ballads, Child's English and Scottish Popular Ballads, Dummery's Old English Ballads 1 Volume, Hazlitt's Early Popular Poetry of England, Daly and Flaherty's Poetry of the People, Percy's Relics of Ancient English Poetry, in every man's library, texts, translations, etc. Morris and Skeet's Specimens of Early English, Morris's Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, in Early English Text Series, Madden Slayamon's Brute, Text and Translation A Standard Work, but rare, The Pearl, Text and Translation, by Gollinch, The Same Poem, Prose Version, by Osgood, Metrical Versions by Jewett, Weir Mitchell, and Mead, Jeffrey's History, Translation, in Giles's Six Old English Chronicles Bonds Antiquarian Library, Morley's Early English Prose Romances, Joyce's Old Celtic Romances, Guests the Mabinogion, Lanier's Boys Mabinogion, Arthurian Romances Series Translations, The Bell's Letra Series, Seconds to Announced, will contain the texts of a large number of works of this period, with notes and introductions, Language, Marsh's Lectures on the English Language, Bradley's Making of English, Lounsbury's History of the English Language, Emerson's Brief History of the English Language, Greenough and Kittredge's Words and Their Ways in English Speech, Welsh's Development of English Literature and Language. Suggestive Questions. 1. What did the Northmen originally have in common with the Anglo-Saxons and the Danes? What brought about the remarkable change from Northmen to Normans? Tell briefly the story of the Norman Conquest. How did the conquest affect the life and literature of England? 2. What types of literature were produced after the conquest? How do they compare with Anglo-Saxon literature? What works of this period are considered worthy of a permanent place in our literature? 3. What is meant by the rhyming chronicles? What part did they play in developing the idea of nationality? What led historians of this period to write in verse? Describe Jeffrey's history. What was its most valuable element from the viewpoint of literature? 4. What is Laomone's brute? Why did Laomone choose this name for his chronicle? What special literary interest attaches to the poem? 5. What word are the metrical romances? What reasons led to the great interest in three classes of romances, i.e. matters of France, Rome, and Britain? What new and important element enters our literature in this type? Read one of the metrical romances in English and comment freely upon it, as to interest, structure, ideas, and literary quality. 6. Tell the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. What French and what Saxon elements are found in the poem? Compare it with Beowulf to show the points of inferiority and superiority. Compare Beowulf's fight with Grendel or the fire Drake and Sir Gawain's encounter with the Green Knight.
having in mind one the virtues of the hero, to the qualities of the enemy, three the methods of warfare, for the purpose of the struggle, read selections from the pearl and compare with Deer's Lament, what are the personal and the universal interests in each poem, 7, tell some typical story from the Mabinogion, where did the Arthurian legends originate, and how did they become known to English readers, what modern writers have used these legends, what fine elements do you find in them that are not found in Anglo-Saxon poetry? 8. What part did Arthur play in the early history of Britain? How long did the struggle between Britons and Saxons last? What Celtic names and elements entered into English language and literature? 9. What is a ballad? And what distinguishes it from other forms of poetry? Describe the ballad which you like best. Why did the ballad, more than any other form of literature, appeal to the common people? What modern poems suggest the old popular ballad? How do these compare in form and subject matter with the Robin Hood ballads? Chronology History Literature 912 Northmen Settle in Normandy 1066 Battle of Hastings William, King of England 1086 Doomsday Book Completed 1087 William Rufus 1093 Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury 1094 CIR Anselm's Courteous Homo 1096 First Crusade 1100, Henry I 1110, First Recorded Miracle Play in England See Chapter on the Drama 1135, Stephen 1137 CIR, Jeffrey's History 1147, Second Crusade 1154, Henry I 1189, Richard I Third Crusade 1199, John 1200 CIR, Laomone's Brute 1215, Magna Carta 1216, Henry III 1225 CIR, Ancrenry Railway 1230 CIR, University of Cambridge Chartered 1265, Beginning of House of Commons, Simon de Montfort 1267, Roger Bacon's Opus Magus 1272, Edward I 1295, First Complete Parliament 1300-1400, York and Wakefield, Miracle Plays 1307, Edward III 1320 CIR, Cursor Mundi 1327, Edward III 1338, Beginning of Hundred Years' War with France 1340, Birth of Chaucer 1350 CIR, Sir Gawain, The Pearl Chapter Ivy The Age of Chaucer 1350-1400 The New National Life and Literature History of the Period, Two Great Movements may be noted in the complex life of England during the 14th century, the first is political, and culminates in the reign of Edward III. It shows the growth of the English national spirit following the victories of Edward and the Black Prince on French soil. During the Hundred Years' War, in the rush of this great national movement, separating England from the political ties of France and, to a less degree, from ecclesiastical bondage to Rome, the mutual distrust and jealousy which had divided nobles and commons were momentarily swept aside by a wave of patriotic enthusiasm. The French language lost its official prestige and English became the speech not only of the common people but of courts and parliament as well. The second movement is social, it falls largely within the reign of Edward's successor, Richard I.I., and marks the growing discontent with the contrast between luxury and poverty, between the idle wealthy classes and the overtaxed peasants. Sometimes this movement is quiet and strong, as when Wycliffe arouses the conscience of England, again it has the portentous rumble of an approaching tempest as when John Ball harangues a multitude of discontented peasants on Blackheath Commons, using the famous text, when Adam delved and Eve span who was then the gentleman, 
and again it breaks out into the violent rebellion of Wat Tyler. All these things show the same Saxon spirit that had won its freedom in a thousand years struggle against foreign enemies, and that now felt itself oppressed by a social and industrial tyranny in its own midst. Aside from these two movements, the age was one of unusual stir and progress. Chivalry, that medieval institution of mixed good and evil, was in its Indian summer, a sentiment rather than a practical system. Trade, and its resultant wealth and luxury, were increasing enormously. Following trade, as the Vikings had followed glory, the English began to be a conquering and colonizing people. Like the Anglo-Saxons, the native shed something of his insularity and became a traveler, going first to view the places where trade had opened the way, and returning with wider interests and a larger horizon. Above all, the first dawn of the Renaissance is heralded in England, as in Spain and Italy, by the appearance of a national literature. Five writers of the age. The literary movement of the age clearly reflects the stirring life of the times. There is Langland, voicing the social discontent, preaching the equality of men and the dignity of labor, Wycliffe, greatest of English religious reformers, giving the gospel to the people in their own tongue, and the freedom of the gospel in a numbered tracts and addresses, Bauer, the scholar and literary man, criticizing this vigorous life and plainly afraid of its consequences, and Mandeville, the traveler romancing about the wonders to be seen abroad. Above all there is Chaucer, scholar, traveler, businessman, courtier, sharing in all the stirring life of his times, and reflecting it in literature as no other but Shakespeare has ever done. Outside of England the greatest literary influence of the age was that of Dante, Petrarch, and Boccaccio, whose works, then at the summit of their influence in Italy, profoundly affected the literature of all Europe. Chaucer 1440, 1400 what man art thou lockest as thou goldest find in hair, forever upon the ground I see thee stare, approach near, and look up early, he sameth elvish by his countenance, the host's description of Chaucer, prologue, Sir Erdopas on reading Chaucer, the difficulties of reading Chaucer are more apparent than real, being due largely to obsolete spelling and there is small necessity for using any modern versions of the poet's work, which seem to miss the quiet charm and dry humor of the original. If the reader will observe the following general rules which of necessity ignore many differences in pronunciation of 14th century English, he may, in an hour or two, learn to read Chaucer almost as easily as Shakespeare, one get the look of the lines, and let the meter itself decide how final syllables are to be pronounced. Remember that Chaucer is among the most musical of poets, and that there is melody in nearly every line. If the verse seems rough, it is because we do not read it correctly. Two vowels in Chaucer have much the same value as in modern German, consonants are practically the same as in modern English. Three pronounce aloud any strange-looking words. Where the eye fails, the ear will often recognize the meaning. If eye and ear both fail. Then consult the glossary found in every good edition of the poet's works. For final is usually sounded like in Virginia except where the following word begins with a vowel or with. In the latter case the final syllable of one word and the first of the word following are run together. As in reading Virgil, at the end of a line that, if lightly pronounced, adds melody to the verse. In dealing with Chaucer's masterpiece, the reader is urged to read widely at first, for the simple pleasure of the stories and to remember that poetry and romance are more interesting and important than Middle English. When we like and appreciate Chaucer his poetry, his humor, his good stories, 
his kind heart it will be time enough to study his language. Life of Chaucer. For our convenience the life of Chaucer is divided into three periods. The first, of thirty years, includes his youth and early manhood, in which time he was influenced almost exclusively by French literary models. The second period, of fifteen years, covers Chaucer's active life as diplomat and man of affairs, and in this the Italian influence seems stronger than the French. The third, of fifteen years, generally known as the English period, is the time of Chaucer's richest development. He lives at home, observes life closely but kindly, and while the French influence is still strong, as shown in the Canterbury Tales, he seems to grow more independent of foreign models and is dominated chiefly by the vigorous life of his own English people. Chaucer's boyhood was spent in London, on Thames Street near the river, where the world's commerce was continually coming and going. There he saw daily the shipment of the Canterbury Tales just home in his good ship Elaine, with the fascination of a known lands in his clothes and conversation. Of his education we know nothing, except that he was a great reader. His father was a wine merchant, purveyor to the royal household, and from this accidental relation between trade and royalty may have arisen the fact that at seventeen years Chaucer was made page to the Princess Elizabeth. This was the beginning of his connection with the brilliant court, which in the next forty years, under three kings, he was to know so intimately. At nineteen he went with the king on one of the many expeditions of the Hundred Years' War and here he saw chivalry and all the pageantry of medieval war at the height of their outward splendor, taken prisoner at the unsuccessful siege of Reims. He is said to have been ransomed by money out of the royal purse. Returning to England, he became after a few years squire of the royal household, the personal attendant and confidant of the king. It was during this first period that he married a maid of honor to the queen. This was probably Philip Rowett, sister to the wife of John of Gaunt the famous Duke of Lancaster. From numerous whimsical references in his early poems, it has been thought that this marriage into a noble family was not a happy one, but this is purely a matter of supposition or of doubtful inference. In 1370 Chaucer was sent abroad on the first of those diplomatic missions that were to occupy the greater part of the next 15 years. Two years later he made his first official visit to Italy, to arrange a commercial treaty with Genoa and from this time is noticeable a rapid development in his literary powers and the prominence of Italian literary influences. During the intervals between his different missions he filled various offices at home, chief of which was controller of customs at the port of London. An enormous amount of personal labor was involved, but Chaucer seems to have found time to follow his spirit into the new fields of Italian literature, for when I labor do now is, and hast why mod my reet ninjas, instead of rest and new things. Thou gost whom to thy house anoon, and, also dumb as any soon, thou sittest at another boat till fully das what is thy loak, and livest thus as an hermit. In 1386 Chaucer was elected member of parliament from Kent, and the distinctly English period of his life and work begins. Though exceedingly busy in public affairs and as receiver of customs, his heart was still with his books, from which only nature could win him, and as for me, though that my whip be light on box for to read I me delete, and to him yet I faith in full credence, and in mean hearty have him in reverence so hurtily, that there is game noon that from my box makes me to goon, but yet he seldom, on the holy day, save, certainly, when that the month of May is common, and that I hear the fool a cinch, and that the flowers gin and for to sprinch farewell my book and my devotion.
in the 14th century politics seems to have been, for honest men, a very uncertain business. Chaucer naturally adhered to the party of John of Gaunt, and his fortunes rose or fell with those of his leader. From this time until his death he is up and down on the political ladder, today with money and good prospects, tomorrow in poverty and neglect, writing his complaint to his empty purse, which he humorously calls his savor in this world of here. This poem called the king's attention to the poet's need and increased his pension, but he had but few months to enjoy the effect of this unusual complaint, for he died the next year, 1400, and was buried with honor in Westminster Abbey. The last period of his life, though outwardly most troubled, was the most fruitful of all. His truth, or good counsel, reveals the quiet, beautiful spirit of his life, and spoiled either by the greed of trade or the trickery of politics, flee from the priest, and dwell with so fastness. Suffice unto thy good, though hippy small, for hoard half hate, and climbing tycalness, priest hath unvi, and really blend over all, savor no more than thee be of shall, work well thyself, that other folk canst read, and trout shall deliver a, here is no dread, tempest thee not I'll croak to redress, in trust of here that turneth as a bal, grat rest stand in leal besinus, and eat be war to sporn agin and l, strive not, as doth the crock with the well. Daunt thyself, that dauntest others deed, and trout shall deliver a, here is no dread, that thee is sent, receive in buxomness, the wrestling for this world that acts the fell, her nis non whom, her nis but wilderness, forth, pilgrim, forth, forth, best, out of thy stall, know thy country, look up, thank God of El, hold the highway, and let thy ghost be lena, and trout shall deliver a, here is no dread, Works of Chaucer. First period. The works of Chaucer are roughly divided into three classes, corresponding to the three periods of his life. It should be remembered, however, that it is impossible to fix exact dates for most of his works. Some of his Canterbury tales were written earlier than the English period, and were only grouped with the others in his final arrangement. The best known, though not the best, poem of the first period is the Romant of the Rose a translation from the French Roman de la Rose, the most popular poem of the Middle Ages, a graceful but exceedingly tiresome allegory of the whole course of love, the rose growing in its mystic garden is typical of the lady beauty, gathering the rose represents the lover's attempt to win his lady's favor, and the different feelings aroused love, hate, envy, jealousy, idleness, sweet looks are the allegorical persons of the poet's drama, Chaucer translated this universal favorite, putting in some original English touches, but of the present Romand only the first 1700 lines are believed to be Chaucer's own work. Perhaps the best poem of this period is the Dithy of Blanche the Duchess, better known as the Book of the Duchess, a poem of considerable dramatic and emotional power, written after the death of Blanche, wife of Chaucer's patron, John of Gaunt. Additional poems are the Compline to Pite, a graceful love poem, the ABC, a prayer to the Virgin, translated from the French of a Cistercian monk, its verses beginning with the successive letters of the alphabet, and a number of what Chaucer calls, ballads, roundels, and virilis, with which, says his friend Bauer, the land was filled, the latter were imitations of the prevailing French love ditties, second period, the chief work of the second or Italian period is Troilus and Chrysaide, a poem of 8,000 lines, the original story was a favorite of many authors during the Middle Ages, 
and Shakespeare makes use of it in his Troilus and Cressida. The immediate source of Chaucer's poem is Boccaccio's Il Filostrato, the love-smitten one, but he uses his material very freely, to reflect the ideals of his own age and society, and so gives to the whole story a dramatic force and beauty which it had never known before. The House of Fame is one of Chaucer's unfinished poems, having the rare combination of lofty thought and simple, homely language, showing the influence of the great Italian master. In the poem the author is carried away in a dream by a great eagle from the brittle temple of Venus, in a sandy wilderness, up to the Hall of Fame. To this house come all rumors of earth, as the sparks fly upward. The house stands on a rock of ice right and full of names of folk that hadn't great fames. Many of these have disappeared as the ice melted, but the older names are clear as when first written. For many of his ideas Chaucer is indebted to Dante, Ovid, and Virgil. But the unusual conception and the splendid workmanship are all his own. The third great poem of the period is the legend of good Vimen. As he is resting in the fields among the daisies, he falls asleep and a gay procession draws near. First comes the love god, leading by the hand Alcestis, model of all wifely virtues, whose emblem is the daisy, and behind them follow a truck of glorious women, all of whom have been faithful in love. They gather about the poet, the god upbraids him for having translated the romance of the rose, and for his early poems reflecting on the vanity and fickleness of women, Alcestis intercedes for him, and offers pardon if he will atone for his errors by writing a glorious legend of good women, Chaucer promises, and as soon as he awakes sets himself to the task, nine legends were written, of which Thisbe is perhaps the best, it is probable that Chaucer intended to make this his masterpiece devoting many years to stories of famous women who were true to love, but either because he wearied of his theme, or because the plan of the Canterbury Tales was growing in his mind, he abandoned the task in the middle of his ninth legend, fortunately, perhaps, for the reader will find the prologue more interesting than any of the legends, third period, Chaucer's masterpiece, the Canterbury Tales, one of the most famous works in all literature fills the third or English period of his life. The plan of the work is magnificent, to represent the wide sweep of English life by gathering a motley company together and letting each class of society tell its own favorite stories. Though the great work was never finished, Chaucer succeeded in his purpose so well that in the Canterbury Tales he has given us a picture, 